Every glass of wine tells a story. These stories reveal hidden histories, flavors, and passions. And sometimes they unravel our darkest desires. In Wine Enthusiast's newest podcast, Vinfamous, journalist Ashley Smith dissects the underbelly of the wine world. We hear from the people who know what it means when the product of love and care becomes the source of greed, arson, and even murder. Each episode takes listeners into the mysterious and historic world of winemaking and the crimes that have since become infamous. This podcast pairs well with wine lovers, history nerds, and crime junkies alike. So grab a glass of your favorite wine and follow the podcast to join them as they delve into the twists and turns behind the all-time most shocking wine crimes. Follow Vinfamous on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and be sure to follow the show so you never miss a scandal. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern bar cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 259 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Kim and Brandon Griltz of the Kazan Room in Kobe, Japan. They're on a mission to pioneer the tropical drinks category and spread the good vibes of tiki in the land of cherry blossoms. But before we roll up our sleeves and dig into tiki bar ergonomics, menu design, and international ingredient sourcing, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Kokobe, and these formulation and assembly instructions are graciously sourced from the print magazine Exotica Modern. To make it, you'll need, quote, two ounces of Japanese blended whiskey. They use Suntory's Kakubin yellow label. One and a half ounces of pineapple juice. One ounce of coconut syrup, in this case sourced from Monen. And one quarter ounce of fresh squeezed lime juice. Combine all ingredients in a tin cocktail shaker with cubed ice. Shake and strain into a hollowed out pineapple filled with small cubed or cracked ice. Garnish with pineapple fronds, pineapple wedge, and an orchid. The Kokobe was created in Kobe, Japan by Kim Griltz in association with Tiki Bar Headhunter. For anyone with a dusty old bottle of Japanese whiskey hiding behind a sea of go-to tiki spirits, now is the time to turn up the rock and roll music, don your aloha shirt, slick back your hair, and feel like a Japanese tiki file, if only for a night. End quote. What I like most about the Kokobe is that it embraces fusion, which is something we talk about at length in this interview. Obviously, Japanese whiskey looms large in the cultural consciousness of Japan, but it's not an ingredient you find often in tiki cocktails. When faced with this reality, the strong impulse to say, yeah, but why not, speaks volumes about our guests for this episode and their unique take on tropical drinks. 
So now that you've got a surprising new use for your favorite Japanese whiskey and your favorite spiky tropical fruit, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this complex yet surprisingly potent conversation with Brandon and Kim Griltz of the Kazan Room in Kobe, Japan, some of the topics we discuss include how this husband and wife duo cultivated their passion for tiki at one of America's most celebrated tropical drinks bars, inspiring them to open their own tropical drinks concept in Japan, where they now live. What it means to be a tiki snob or purist and why tiki culture is constantly evolving, almost like a living organism. The ins and outs of tiki menu design, including cocktail origins and attributions, glassware and garnish art, and the ever-important indicator scale of drink potency. Some of the cultural and logistical differences and opportunities that distinguish opening a bar in Japan versus here in the United States, and how to plan your next trip to the Japanese Kansai region and the city of Kobe, where the Kazan Room resides, alongside pampered cows, roaring surf, and picturesque mountains. Along the way, we cover why it's hard to quantify a vibe, tips for designing the perfect magical aloha shirt, why three rums are sometimes better than one, and much, much more. For those of you who would like to get updates on everything that's going on at the Kazan Room, you can follow them on Instagram at the Kazan Room, and be sure to pull them up on your favorite Maps app when you're planning your visit to Kobe, Japan. But for now, please enjoy this fun and wide-ranging conversation with Brandon and Kim Griltz of the Kazan Room. Brandon, Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So before we jump into all things Japan, all things Tiki, perhaps where these two types of cultures collide, uh, could you please both introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, just give us a sense of who you are and what you do. Uh, my name's Kim, and so I am co-owner of the Kazan Room in Kobe, Japan. Um, I also was the drink program director, kind of created the menu here and some of our original cocktails. And I bartend on the weekends in addition to another job that I have. So Awesome. Brandon. Yeah. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm the other co-owner for of the Kazan Room. I work the bar, manage the bar on a daily basis. Yeah. Other than that, you know, a little bit more about my background. Uh, well, both of us are American. We're American citizens. However, we are Japanese residents um, and we hold that status. But more importantly about our backgrounds, um, I come from a historic preservation background. I was practicing for quite a while in America before we moved out to Japan. I did a lot of architectural research and uh, in baseball uh, up in Portland, though, uh, more specifically. And so... Yeah, we got into Tiki probably five, six years ago, moved out to Japan for different reasons. Uh, my wife's a teacher. She was a teacher back in America as well. And so we figured we'd try and teach out here and do something a little more unique and found ourselves in a position to be uh, somewhat of uh, English speaking ambassadors of Tiki, uh, which ended up leading us to uh, opening the bar. But yeah. That's, but yeah, I'm 37. I don't know. Like, that's <laughs> just throwing that out there. I don't know if that people care about that, but yeah. Yeah. So, Portland. So, 
when you were back stateside, did you have the opportunity to kind of soak in and experience some of that amazing Portland cocktail scene? Was that in any way an influence for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we, you know, one of our favorite tiki bars in Portland or well, our favorite anywhere is Holly Pele. And so, yeah, that was, there was an influence from that bar on us and our appreciation for tiki cocktails. Yeah, for sure. I think we really matured as uh, cocktail people who appreciate cocktails in Portland. Uh, I think just working and, you know, outside of grad school, we moved to Portland and we were making money and we were, you know, really starting to mature as people. And with the food and cocktail scene in Portland, it just really kind of shaped our perspectives of what we had, uh, what we like and what we still like to this day. And so um, even really shaped our perspective of Tiki with Holly Pele as well and the Alibi and, you know, Rum Club and some other Tiki and Tiki, you know, adjacent bars in Portland. It was our first contact uh, for Tiki as we know it and mostly cocktails as well. So it plays a big, played a big role in you know, who we are and what we're looking for in this industry. Yeah, that's, I'm so glad that there was that touch point because, you know, Tiki is one of those types of drink cultures where you generally have some sort of pedigree behind you that is very traceable, right? There are like Tiki joints, like many major cities in the U.S. have them. And like the people who open those tend to subsequently also have their own, you know, history with the style of tropical drinks that, that came from other establishments. And so there's this really interesting kind of cross pollination. And I think being able to kind of open up the, the archives and see where people were influenced is really fascinating to me as, as we kind of unpack the, the meaning of perhaps in your case, what it means to be English speaking Tiki ambassadors. So I know we want to get to the story of the Kazan room, but I want to press on Hale Pele a little bit more. What was their brand of Tiki? If you had to sort of describe their brand of Tiki and their approach at the time when you were frequenting that establishment, how would you describe it? And like, what are some of the influences that you have then perhaps transported over the Pacific to Japan from them? Uh, to me, it was mostly the vibe of Holly Pele for me, which I know you can't really quantify that or bar itself is not in charge of, you know, the vibe, I guess it kind of, it's a mixture of the people who visit the bar, the Tiki community that's there. So I really felt that Holly Pele had a great tiki community where people were who visited there. A lot of people were really into the culture of tiki and maybe even some tiki snobs there. But, uh, you know, that's something you just can't really describe. It's just a feeling when you go there, a feeling of escaping and of enjoying cocktails around, around like-minded people. And that's what I enjoyed about Holly Bailey. So. Yeah. You know, for me, I think Blair Reynolds and Martin Kate, you know, they were very, they did a great job with Holly Pele. Martin Kate obviously wrote somewhat of the modern book of Tiki uh, and Tiki bars. And so I think Holly Pele is one of a great 
you know, great examples of that, you know, but even back to what Kim was saying, you know, the fact that the vibe is great and they, you know, have seating only, you know, there's no standing room. It definitely makes you feel like a bar and not just a restaurant or it's not a club. It, it has very intent, uh, very specific intentions on how it wants to, you know, curate the experience for its guests by that, that alone, just having seats for everyone. Um, it doesn't get too crazy or doesn't get, you can relax. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, some of the things we took away from it, however, especially after frequenting it for, uh, yeah, a few years was, you know, they have uh, drink clubs like the water bearers club, which is make your way through the menu. And then they also have a rum club. I, I forget what that's called. Yeah. Fire breathers or something where you make your way through all their rum tastings and, so it's more or less their membership clubs and that, yeah, the regulars that were there Sunday afternoon. So around four or five o'clock is when people who became these members of different, you know, either rum or drink clubs could actually go and get their discount. So come Sunday, four o'clock, you were there with the people who really appreciate rum, the people who really appreciate tiki and cocktails. And so that was our community. And that's what we really loved about Holly Paley is that it pulled the best out of uh, Portland. Uh, and you had some great people we met there. And um, yeah, it was just, it was a lot of fun. I don't know. It was our home, you know, it's like our tiki home for mm-hmm. us. So it'll always be our tiki home. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I'm really glad that, that you were able to dig into that for me. Uh, I want to come back to what a tiki snob looks like, but I also want to um, uh, make a, just a couple of observations the seated only aspect is actually, I think, sneakily important because now that I think back to some of the great tiki experiences that I've had, um, you know, the Polynesian in New York City, we've got, you know, Latitude 29 down in New Orleans. Those are just a couple that I can think of. Oh, uh, Zombie Zombie Village uh, in San Francisco, Smuggler's Cove as well. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that all of those were seated only. And it, I think it's it's interesting to to unpack some of the technical elements of what a tiki experience entails, because, you know, on the one hand, Kim, like you said, you can't quantify the vibe. On the other hand, that seated only restriction that, you know, it's, it's, it's more of like a creative constraint that these great tiki bars all seem yeah. to be applying, but that seems to contribute directly to that relaxed vibe, right? Like you don't have to worry about somebody, you know, like I was at a, I was at a bar uh, just a couple evenings ago and it's like supposed to be a Chicago dive sports bar and it's tiny. And part of the experience of being there is that if you do get a seat at the bar, yeah, you're lucky, but you're also unlucky in that people are constantly ordering their drinks like right right over you and like reaching over you for their drinks and food. It's just part of the experience. It's different. And it seems like that one element is across some of the great tiki establishments that I've certainly visited something that's consistent. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but tiki snobs, what, what does a tiki snob look like? What does a tiki snob do? And maybe uh, we can differentiate a tiki snob from like, you know, the, the, the light side of the force, like the tiki Jedi who are, who are doing it right. <laughs> so what's the difference between like a tiki snob and a tiki Jedi? Um, I think a tiki snob is just someone who thinks tiki is one thing and only one thing. And if it's not, you know, eclectic enough or crazy enough, then 
they won't label it as tiki. And I think that tiki is something that is always evolving. I mean, it has evolved since, you know, its beginning. It's been just a mishmash of like all kinds of things and cultures. And um, I think it's better to accept it for what it is and for where it's going to and allow it to become what it is instead of like pinholing it into one one specific thing. Hmm. Brandon, do you yeah. have any thoughts on us uh, on tiki snobs? Yeah, I think what Kim's saying, like more of a tiki purist, right? Yeah. And so historically, some people expect tiki and tiki bars to meet this certain aesthetic or certain drink menu. And I do believe in that too. I think a tiki bar has to have many elements to really be considered a true tiki bar. Uh, however, to what Kim was saying though, too, is like not every bar is Don the Beachcomber. You know, not every bar is a Trader Vicks and Trader Vicks wasn't Don the Beachcomber either. And the Luau wasn't Trader Vicks. And this was just the evolution back, you know, 70 years ago. And we continue to see that with more modern takes on tiki or the removal of tiki imagery and more kind of tropical t- uh, cocktail bars. But, you know, as long as there's still a, a solid rum and tiki cocktail menu to me it's like that's really tiki so a lot of people don't want to embrace that because it doesn't look like a trader vix or it doesn't feel like i don't know their favorite bar that might be you know 30 40 years old but you know we have to respect that even 70 years ago when tiki was still evolving it wasn't a copycat of each other they were pushing the envelope and introducing new elements it just so happens that 70 years later in you know 2023 with every el- everything else considered is people are pushing the envelope in terms of the aesthetic and how they want to represent tiki so tiki snobs or tiki purists like definitely like to think that tiki is a in a time capsule and um not to say, you know, again, not to say that Holly Pele is filled with these people. I don't know. I don't want to say anything wrong about that, but they're out there. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's really interesting context. And I, I mean, I think maybe we can give these people a little bit of, you know, some benefit of the doubt in that, like, if if what we're saying is that you know, the, the vibe is something that we enjoy and, and being comfortable and feeling like you are around like-minded people is something that makes you comfortable and, and kind of contributes to that laid back feeling that so many Tiki enthusiasts enjoy, then, you know, perhaps, you know, not feeling like things are in constant flux and change is, is represents a little bit of anxiety, right? Like, Oh, I like this thing. I want that thing exactly every time. Uh, but, but it does again, seem to run contrary to Kim, as you pointed out, you know, Tiki as sort of this living evolving organism that guess what? Things are changing. There are people who mm-hmm. are, um, you know, really changing things up and asking interesting questions and making changes to aesthetics. You know, like like Doom Tiki might be a, a great example with sort of like the death metal aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So, 
So, so yeah, no, that, that's all wonderful context, but, uh, I, I think we should turn our attention now that we've kind of, you know, done, done a little bit of tiki riffing in a, in not in a vacuum, but sort of like, you know, some high level tiki thought work here. Let's turn our attention to the Kazan room. Uh, now when I first looked at this name, I was like, oh, it's named after a city in like Russia, upward inflection question mark. But that, that was clearly wrong on my part. So tell us about how you named it, how you kind of built it from the ground up and i guess you know brandon you 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 referenced that you think that there are some you know essential components to what a tiki bar is so like maybe you can you can kind of seed those elements in as you describe you know the kazan room and how it grew to be what it is today yeah um well you know for the listeners out there kazan is the romanization and pronunciation of volcano in Japanese. So Kazan is volcano or fire mountain, um, as it would be read in kanji or even in Chinese context. Mm -hmm. So it's not a Russian spin on tiki (laughs) um, or even Eastern European language. Uh, My sister-in-law is Romanian and she said this word means something different in Romanian as well. And so not to say there's anything wrong with that. It's just we live in Japan and this is a word for volcano in Japanese. So it is translated as the volcano room. That why volcano? Yeah, why can't, well, volcano, you know, islands. That's how islands in the rim of fire are made. You know, the Polynesia is volcanoes. So it's, you know, to me, that's pretty simple, straightforward. Hale Pele is the fire, a volcano god, you know, just to reference that bar again. But And the volcano room would have been a little too on the nose. And, you know, we're here in Japan and, you know, Japanese culture samples English quite a bit in terms of uh, its pop culture. And so we thought we'd kind of do the reverse and kind of sample its language, you know, be it that we're living here and we're... This makes both together. Yeah. And so um, we used to go under the... The, the name of Tiki Oishi as well. So we definitely really love playing with Japanese and Tiki at the same time. And so the Kazan room really made sense for us, but yeah, that's the name and it's a uh, background as far as the bar goes. Yeah. You know, I think when we were shaping the bar and building out the bar and kind of creating the bar program as a whole, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, we definitely wanted a space that was going to be seating only definitely more of a cocktail bar first uh, then a tiki bar. I would say our vibe here is probably more of a either modern take on tiki or pre-tiki before tiki's actually made their way into what we know now as tiki culture. So the first tiki, I think, was used at the Luau in the 1950s, and it was used on the menu. But prior to that, tiki's were never really part of the tropical cocktail culture that Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic's spearheaded. Uh, It wasn't until Steve Crane used the tiki on the uh, menu for the luau that it actually became part of the imagery and aesthetic of tiki culture as we know it. And so we don't really use a lot of the tiki imagery either. Uh, However, our menu is very much based on historic and classic tiki cocktails and some originals that are rum-based with Japanese, you know, cocktail and spirit fusion. But going back just again to the design and some of the aesthetic of our bar, it was definitely more of a 
lounge concept or uh, memberships club. I think we definitely used classic Japanese whiskey bars and cocktail bars as an influence just because we are here. That's what's common. And so originally the riff was, why don't we take a classic Japanese whiskey bar with all of its class and put our tiki perspective on it and, you know, build something that could, you know, fuse the in-between of a tiki file and a Japanese, you know, cocktail enthusiast. And so I feel like the Kazan room kind of hit that, you know, hit that on the head. So that's, that's where, that's what we're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Kim, what are your, what are your thoughts? Well, Brandon is the designer. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I agree with everything he's just said. Well, I mean, so let's, I guess, turn our attention maybe away from the design a little bit and to the drinks program. I, I mean, let, let's dig in there because you mentioned when you were introducing you yourself that you designed some of the original drinks. So I'm personally curious about how one goes about designing a cocktail menu for a new tiki bar, because to me, that sounds like one of the most intimidating aspects because you're making, yeah. no matter what you do, you're making a big statement and especially with those custom drinks. So maybe can, can you just share some of your thoughts on, on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, first off, it was a lot of fun and a lot of, uh, it took us, you know, months of taste testing, mm. which is really yeah. tough work. We, you know, we really wanted to create a menu that um, was well-rounded in terms of the where the drinks came from like where they were created what the years that they were created and also the flavors and the spirits that were used so we do have you know many of the classics um you know like mai tai zombie punch three dots and a dash um and then we tried to kind of also do ones that we thought japanese people would enjoy more maybe some lighter drinks like the lapu lapu um, something that's going to be like sweet and kind of easier to drink. And then with the originals, we wanted to bring in some like Japanese spirits as well. So the two originals I created are our Sakura Sling, mm. which is a, a take on the Singapore Sling. Um, but it uses a Sakura liqueur, um, which is yeah, like cherry blossom liqueur that is made here in Japan. And with mix that with gin and pineapple and some other things. And, um, and then the other one that I created is the, um, Kokobe, which, you know, is like kind of a mix between coconut and the city we're in Kobe. And, uh, so that one is kind of like a pina colada, but it uses a Japanese whiskey. So it's got like a very different flavor to it, but I think that the flavors, uh, work quite well together yeah, so we get, a lot of, we get a lot of great so. reception we've gotten a lot of great reception from that yeah and we serve it in a pineapple and people love that too so yeah no i'm, I'm looking at the menu that you uh you sent along right now and checking those out uh it looks like you also have the kazan grog so yeah. is that one of those things so like grog as i understand it is like it's a thing that has certain components, but it seems like there's a little bit of room to kind of wiggle uh, with that cocktail. So maybe could you take us through what a grog is in general and then maybe how you went about designing your house grog? 
Well, the Kazan Grog was Brandon's creation, mm-hmm. so I'll let him talk about that one. Yeah, so from what I understand, the Grog is, you know, where it comes from historically is just lime or citrus, sugar, water, and rum. And so that kind of defines the Grog as a, as a base or the components. And so riffing off of that, we use a blend of rums. And uh, we some tiki spice, which I guess wouldn't be traditional to a grog, and some great sugar. We use a mai tai sugar, which has a little hint of vanilla. And I don't know, you know, it it's similar to I think for listeners who know tiki, maybe like a one five one swizzle. It has that kind of flavor profile to it. And it's again for me, it was a drink I created because of what we can't get in this country and. You know, the zombie has uh, a lot of flavor and the jet pilot has a lot of flavor. We have those on our menu, but we can't really do a great 151 because of some of the lack of rums in this country that aren't imported or sold here. And so for me, it was really an attempt to get close to that and make a drink that has a nice yeah, flavor profile that's well-rounded with some nice spice and something that, yeah, we could be proud of too. And so, yeah, I think that's how the Kazan Grog came about. But, you know, as I'm drinking a Navy Grog, we love Grogs. So anything with the Grog title is something I'm interested in when I see that on a menu. And so we definitely knew we wanted something on a menu. And the same with the Navy Grog. We can't really do a Navy Grog here we're doing one tonight because we have the rum but we technically can't buy that rum here it was brought to us by a friend and so we don't have a navy grog on the menu because we can't get those rums here in this country so you know back to what kim was saying about the drink program and how we got to it we i just want to mention that it was also shaped by the rums that are available here you know and so we had to make a menu and a tiki menu by rums that we could buy and other spirits that we could buy here regularly and didn't have to import. And so that shaped our menu quite a bit, but there's a lot of other cocktails we would love to have on the menu like a Navy's grog, but more specifically the Kazan grog is just something we thought could really reach, you know, the tiki profile and flavor profile of some of the other drinks we couldn't make based on the rums we can't find so Mm. or like they say you know what one rum can't do three can and so that's what our (laughs) kazan grog is trying to do is you know we don't have the certain rums that one rum can do so the kazan grog is definitely a blended cocktail that is trying to make up for some of the rums we can't get Mm. for sure so i want to zoom in on this creative constraint. You know, I, I mentioned creative constraints earlier on and this sourcing question is certainly a creative constraint that I think goes toward describing what the tiki culture in Japan is like, which is something that I'm fascinated by. And obviously, you know, like it's, it's something that, that you are directly like you're you're in the business of directly influencing that. So I'm curious, like besides the fact that you can't source some of these key ingredients that you might otherwise like to, what describes the like 
uh, strengths and weaknesses is a weird way to put it, but like what what are what are some of the advantages or perhaps differences of like trying to do this tiki thing in Japan? I don't know if that was a clear question, but hopefully you kind of see where I'm going with this. Yeah, of course. So strength and weaknesses of kind of I would say pioneering tiki in Japan. Um as a pioneer, the weaknesses are it doesn't really exist. And we don't have a fallback of a culture that recognizes tiki as a cocktail program or culture. We don't have, you know, regular tiki files that are coming out of, you know, the woodwork to be a significant proportion of our patrons. We do have a lot of people who have traveled for Tiki and visited our bar, even over the X amount of months we've been open. And now that Japan travel has picked up, people are definitely circling it and, you know, making a point to come here. And it's been great. And we're really happy to contribute to the Tiki community and the Tiki cocktail community in this country in that way. But, you know, unlike any other major city in America or I would say America, because America, I think, holds the most tiki bars, and that's where tiki culture is most prominent. So I'll just say America, for that matter. You know, you open a tiki bar in a major city, and, you know, people understand the concept. They understand what you're going for. They may have had that drink, or they understand that drink, or have heard of that drink before. But here in Japan, you open a cocktail bar and a tiki bar, and your drink's called a suffering bastard or a zombie (laughs) punk you know, and they don't know where to begin. Or we're talking about, you know, pimento drams and, you know, Mai Tai syrups that we're making in-house, and they've never tasted these flavors ever. You know, you have to remember that, like, maybe ever in their entire life when they step into our bar, not only have they never heard the exotic lounge music that we play from, you know, the 1950s and 60s or understand the concept of a tiki bar or, you know, the, 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 the drink names, but the flavors too, they've never put these together. Cause again, this is, we're making these syrups. We're making the cocktails based on historic recipes that you just cannot get here either over the counter in terms of the syrups and then the cocktails you would, I'd be very surprised if you could find a zombie punch at any cocktail bar in, you know, the greater Tokyo or Kansai region. It it seems like what you're trying to identify is that like, it's almost the opposite of what you were describing with Hale Pele earlier. And that's that again, that that's why I was so glad that you were able to, to bring that context in because you were saying that Hale Pele almost extracted this element out of the greater Portland area. And that, element of like-minded people who were all similarly passionate and well-versed in this drink style and culture showed up every Sunday at 4 p.m. Whereas like you are pioneering and I love this notion of pioneering tiki because when I think about pioneering like you think of somebody like cutting through jungle with a machete or taming the untamed wilderness whereas with tiki I think pioneering is more like bringing in exotic plants or like actually bringing more plants um but uh no no that that's why I was so curious to ask you about this because it seems like a very different project than what you experienced at Hale Pele because here you're responsible for like 
creating this community from scratch in a vacuum. And I I think it's like one of the things that I like, as I was thinking about this interview, as it was approaching, I was like, man, Tiki in Japan. Well, when we think of the collision of the US and Japan, we think of World War II, generally speaking. And did that take place in the South Pacific? Yes, it did. But I, I, I have to imagine for Japan, those memories are very different and play a very different cultural role. And they probably, correct me if I'm wrong, don't really lend themselves to any sort of romanticization of that time period in the same way that like in the post-World War II era, like suddenly South Pacific got real big in U.S. culture. Like, is that is that anywhere in the correct ballpark? Yeah, I mean, it's true in terms of Tiki, you know, the South Pacific infatuation really came to a head in the 50s and 60s with movies and books and the statehood of Hawaii and, you know, Elvis doing, you know, movies like Blue Hawaii. And so it was a huge thing. And I think for some of the patrons we have had, that's what they think. It's it's Hawaii. It's a Hawaiian bar. Or yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, Japanese people, since they don't really understand tiki or where it came from like they just yeah they just associate it with hawaii and tropical and yeah we've heard people in here saying oh the last time i was at a bar like this was in tahiti or fiji mm-hmm. or guam right and so um as those are common tourist uh destinations for the japanese n- natives you know but still you know on the on in terms of what we're doing it provides that escapism which is what tiki is all about so when we hear people coming in saying, oh, man, last time I been in a bar like this was in Tahiti, but now you're in it a few blocks from your home. We're again, we're doing our job, you know, as uh, Tiki bar owners is we're providing that escape for them. And so that's uh, that was that's kind of great feedback in terms of war as well. Um, what I've learned from teaching in Japanese schools is that their perspective is really more about just like everyone taking responsibility for the past and moving forward in a peaceful way. Like I don't ever feel like there's resentment towards us as Americans or, you know, any tension anymore. I think that they just feel like everyone needs to take responsibility for our past history and know about the history so that we can create a more peaceful society. So yeah, no, that's that's really that's really good context because, you know, it's it's one of the key touch points when you think of, you know, a, a fusion of American or American inspired culture and Japanese culture. That's immediately where your mind goes. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. And I thought that since it's a newish year, I'd share some thoughts on how switching to local farm-raised meat and line-caught seafood from right here in the Mid-Atlantic is a really solid New Year's resolution. First off, this is one of the few resolutions that'll be easy to stick to. That's because every month Near Country delivers right to your door and they give you a ton of customization options so that you can really personalize what's in your delivery. I have literally never seen a delivery service with such good customization and add-on options. Full stop. Second, when you see the quality of this meat, 
from the luxuriously dark tones of their grass-fed beef to the insane marbling on some of the cuts of their pasture-raised pork, you'll know immediately that you've got something special. And that carries through on the plate with nourishing, hearty food for the whole family. I'm a new dad, and my daughter loves sampling my food when we cook up a meal using Near Country Provisions proteins. And as if that wasn't enough, you can feel good knowing that Near Country sources their food from farmers that use sustainable and regenerative agricultural practices that create healthy animals and a healthy environment in which they can roam. A great example are their eggs, which are sourced from Warrington, Virginia, where their farm partner adheres to the highest standards of pasture-raising chickens, which means healthier birds and rich, dark yolks when you crack them open in the pan. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, that's B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. Resolve to improve the quality of the protein in your diet and vote with your wallet to support ethical, sustainable local agriculture here in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Now back to the show. I want to make sure that we give ample time to one of the things that I was most excited about when uh, when I was emailing with you, Brandon, which is which is the menu design itself. Now, mm-hmm. I, I remember I was talking with Mark Sansom from World's 50 Best, and they've actually they've actually launched an entire like best best cocktail menu competition where, where, where bars are actually just submitting their menus for consideration. They're not even like, you know, having people come and evaluate their their drinks or their service. They're just submitting best menu design. So mm-hmm. when I looked at the menus, obviously I was reminded of some of these great menus. It's also a very tiki thing to do. I mean, when I, when I go down to Jeff Barry's bar, Latitude 29, I get very similar vibes. It's a great menu. You're, you're reading it. There's the sort of the glassware is also on display. Um, but what to you makes uh, a great tiki menu and like, Maybe also, if if you can, drop in uh, the importance of names, dates, and attributions of drinks. Yeah. So, you know, I think what makes a great cocktail menu or a tiki cocktail menu is one, the drinks, um, the diversity of drinks, just to begin. But I think more aesthetically, I think we're, with what we, where you were going, we just really wanted to showcase the drinks in a fun and a fun way. And I think for us specifically, having a picture of the drink was extremely important because as we mentioned, we are, you know, quote unquote, pioneering this and that, you know, if people come in here, they don't understand English or they can't read English, they at least get a picture to look at. And so that was extremely important to us so that they could see what they were going to be getting. Now, granted, we also use you know, a simple breakdown of the cocktails as well, which might have lime, vanilla, or pineapple. And those words are pretty commonly translated in Japanese as well. So most people, regardless of their language, would be able to piece that together. And then thirdly would be the drink scale. You know, for a lot of new customers and new people coming to Tiki um, and Japan's cocktails wouldn't, I would say in our experience, cocktails in Japan uh, would rarely ever hit the four on our drink scale, right? So 
They're going to be around a one. A one, yeah. Mostly a one everywhere. So a one or a two on the scale. I mean, first off, I just want to say I love the the volcano imagery, right? So like for for folks who are just listening to this, like you've got a scale on the front of the menu and you've got like a one is sort of like a dormant volcano and then a two, it's got like a little smoke coming from the top. A three is like an eruption and a four would be sort of like your your mega colossal uh, explosion. And uh, I, I just love that. I think it's so, A, it's it's universal in what it communicates and and B, I think it's just such a, a great affordance to have on a menu. So, um, so yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on, on, uh, on, on cocktail or tiki menus? I think that the drink scale is really important for Japanese people too, because well, being in Japan and not having much experience with strong cocktails, some of our drinks can be a bit overpowering for them. So it's a good way for us to also discuss with them about like, okay, where, where are you at? What would you, you know, what would you like? Do you want something on the weaker side or on the stronger side? So um, it's a good way to start that conversation too, and make sure that they're, they know what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, we've had people come in here who said no force, right? Like no force, (laughs) like I can't do that. But you know, the fact that they have that perspective and, they have that scale to say, I'm not going there tonight, you know, and not getting tricked into buying a zombie punch without knowing what they're getting. Because a lot of these drinks, too, are so well balanced. And I think in the tiki culture in general, they're so well balanced, you can suck them down in, you know, a matter of 10, 15 minutes. But yet you're also, you know, you've got overproof rums in there, you might have three or four different rums, and they can be quite pungent. And so, you know, you have to know your limits. And so this is a great way for us to let people know their limits. It's like, this is a four, know your limits, take your time, know what you're doing tonight, you know? So, and then I don't know if you've talked about the locations and dates too. Yeah. You know, again, that's just something we've picked up again. We've been Tiki files for a long time. We've probably done 50 plus bars from Bangkok to New York. You know, we, have been meticulously keeping notes of where we've been originally just for fun. And then after a while, we started doing it so often that we were like, okay, we had our own methodology for how we, you know, evaluate a bar and what we were looking for. And this was just something that we've picked up along the way. And I think it's just, again, as a historian too, you know, we didn't make these drinks. We have no problem giving credit to those who did. Yeah, it's just and, part of the tiki history. Yeah, teaching teaching people a little yeah. bit about tiki history exactly. at the same time. I mean, a lot of people are very curious and very interested in where the drinks came from. So it's and a I good think, talking point, too. Yeah, and I think just here in Japan, just to relate it back to, is that, again, when people come in here and everyone thinks it's a Hawaiian bar or the tiki is Hawaiian, and then they look at the menu and it says Oakland, California, Oakland and L.A. and you know, Columbus, Ohio and Las Vegas, you know, there's maybe one drink on our menu that's actually from Hawaii, right? Like these drinks were made from, yeah, New Orleans or Beverly Hills or Egypt, right? The suffering bastards. So it it just kind of helps educate our customers and our guests for the first time, knowing that Tiki is very diverse and, you know, these drinks were made around the world, not necessarily in tiki bars, but 
they made their way into the tiki culture and it's not just a Hawaiian bar or just a Hawaiian fantasy. Well, I think it's such a useful thing to have on the menu, especially knowing that I'm speaking with a historian and a teacher, (laughs) right? And these, you know, these dates and attributions are literally designed to teach people the history of these drinks. And I mean, going back to what's different about your bar compared to like a Hale Pele, for example, is that like, yeah, did, do they probably have like some similar attributions or do many, you know, cocktail or tiki bars here stateside have those same like tools baked into the menu? Yes, of course they do. But you're using them in perhaps a more, not a more urgent way, but a more like, oh no, like we need to assume that people walking in these doors have not experienced this. And so, you know, I think it, I think it also kind of points to one of the attributes of many or most good tiki bartenders that I've observed is that they, in order to make these drinks, you almost have to have a sense of the history and then subsequently be able to be conversant in that history with the guests in order to make it a well-rounded experience. And so, I don't know, like to me, like, you know, throughout this conversation, we've been picking out of the clouds some of these benchmarks of what a good tiki bar is, what a good tiki experience is. And to me, that knowledge base coming from the bartender and flowing from the bartender to the guests in an easy informative way, perhaps prompted by the menu is, is a really useful tool to have, but it, it does speak to the type of knowledge that you need as a tiki bartender. I don't, I don't know if that resonates. Yeah, most definitely. I think again, as a historian, I feel like a docent of tiki. I mean, when people come in here and I can give them a five minute lecture on where the drink came from, who made it, why it's on our menu, what rums we're using. It just, it's intriguing. It's like art, you know, I always think of, you know, people who don't really understand art and they see modern art and they just see, you know, a dot on a blank canvas and they think this is easy, right? But then those who really appreciate the the movements of modern art or that artist and what he was trying to do or say, you know, they go to those museums and they say, this is a great piece. And I think for us too, we have to educate people to really understand why you're enjoying this drink more than just it being tasty and we're building a culture. And it's in our business to build a culture in this country, given that that's our business now as, you know, Tiki Bar owners. But it comes easily because we love it and we want to showcase it, and we want to share our knowledge. And we have had regulars who come back and, you know, we hear them talking in private and so on, just saying how they really enjoy learning about Tiki through us. And, you know, so we're just that medium for them. So they get a drink, they get a history lesson, um, they get an appreciation, and that grows. And they want to showcase that to their friends and so on. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love hearing that. And, uh, I think now would be an amazing time to kind of talk about what it would look like to, you know, take a trip to Japan. Let's say one or more of our listeners. I know, I know we've got 
uh, one of my close friends who's a regular listener, uh, is, he just, just came back from Japan. But let's, let's say that uh, you know, our listeners are interested in planning a trip to Japan and they want to put Kobe on their radar and, and maybe stop by the Kazan room. Like, what does that look like? What are some other kind of things that they might, might want to put on their itinerary bar-wise or other? And then you know, once we describe a little bit of you know, little little do a little travel agenting, maybe we can talk about what's what's next for the Kazan room now that you've been open for a little while. Um, yeah, the Kansai region, which includes Kyoto, Osaka, and Kobe, I think is I would say it's the number one place to visit in Japan. Kyoto has all of the World Heritage sites. You know, has so many great places to see that represents Japanese history and culture. Osaka has like so more of like the nightlife. It's got the flashy lights like you can see in Tokyo too. Definitely like a nice good cocktail and bar scene up there. And then um, Kobe, I think it, you're gonna get more of like a real like immersion into Japanese culture because there aren't quite as many tourists here. People don't necessarily speak as much English here. You're going to walk into a restaurant and get like a real Japanese experience, you know? So that's what I, I like about Kobe. And um, would you like to add on to that? Yeah. So if you're coming here, you know, I think most people want to try Kobe beef or, mm, uh, what else is popular here? You know, cinema and jazz actually has been one of the more common associations to Kobe. Um, we're in Kitano, which is actually one of the first historic districts and neighborhoods in Japan after they opened their borders about 170 years ago, where all of the ambassadors from Belgium and England and foreign countries established the residencies. And so we have a lot of kind of heritage tourism in this neighborhood for that. So that's quite popular too. And then this street in which we're located on is quite popular for jazz. It's actually called Jazz Street and Kobe has a lot of jazz history as well. And so we get a lot of tourists in, in for that reason, looking for jazz and just other history in that matter. And it's a great port city, very walkable very friendly and just simple, clean, you know, not as hustle and bustle as a Tokyo or Osaka. And it's a, it, we love it. Obviously we live here and we decided to open a bar here too. But if you're coming here, I think, yeah, there's a lot of fun things to do in terms of some of the tourist attractions and what Kobe has to offer and what it's known for. We've got the mountains and the sea, both in Kobe, so you can visit the harbor and then you can go up to the mountains. There's a nice uh, herb garden up there and you can do like a hike down through waterfalls and at the same time you can go out to the, the harbor and see boats and um, and then you've got the city you're sandwiched right in between. So. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it sounds like a great city. I mean, I was going to ask, you guys do have those cows, right? The special cows. So that's all, you know, that, that would, that would be on my list. (laughs) Uh, So 
that sounds like a, a great a great advertisement for visiting Kobe and and hitting up the Kazan room. But uh, but what's next for for you folks now that you've gotten your feet wet? You've you've been you know you've been serving for as you mentioned a number of months already. Uh, what's what's on the horizon? What 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 are we looking forward to as twenty twenty three progresses? Well, we're going to be back in America this summer. We're hoping to do some presentations on this very topic, tiki in Japan, and what it means to, yeah, pioneer tiki or bring tiki to a new city in a foreign city at some tiki events in in America. We also, you know, have some tiki retreat, or excuse me, not tiki retreats, but um, cocktail retreats we might be attending and other weekender events that we're looking forward to attending. You know, we've, we've been collaborating with local shops that aren't cocktail, but like, for example, this month we're working with a local burger shop and we have a Kazan burger and we've been working. Yeah. It's delicious. Mm -hmm. I know for anyone listening, you're not going to be able to taste it, but (laughs) it's really good. It's a spicy beef with, sweet pineapple and coconut syrup and bacon. It's just really, really nice. And yeah, I was pretty much the taste tester on that for about a week. And so, but we've been working. Yeah, sorry. Pizza shop in the future as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The Japanese community and just a restaurant and shop community has kind of embraced us in this neighborhood. Um, You know, we've lived in this neighborhood for a few years and, I've gotten to know people and it just feels like a nice tight knit community where they're trying to help us out as much as they can too and um, help promote our brand. But, you know, you also think of pizza and burger. These are very American, (laughs) you know, concepts. And Mm -hmm. so we live in a neighborhood that has become just by default, like a very American style tourist place where you literally have a New York style pizza shop a beer bar, a burger joint, and then a block or two away, a tiki bar, and then a block up, a uh, a donut shop, right? So, right, (laughs) like in New York or whatever, just an American-style donut. So, I guess they're called Rise Donuts, right? And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, and so it's just become this very, like, American village-type neighborhood that we've been living in prior to opening the bar and that we're now contributing to. And so we're working with these same business owners who are around the same age as we are young, you know, hungry. And, you know, again, it's a good thing. Yeah. We're really excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of good cross pollination going on. Yes, exactly. No competition either. You know, donuts, tiki, we're not, you're not fighting for the same dollar there. True, true. Uh, well, Brandon, Kim, this has been awesome. Um, anything else you want to mention about uh, the Kazan room before we jump into a couple quick lightning round questions? We love having tourists here and and tiki people and uh, would love any of your listeners to come give us a visit. So. All right. Well, we will have links over on the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. So uh, we will make sure that everybody hits you up. And uh, with that, let's jump into the lightning round. Yeah. First question. All right. This is our desert island scenario. So you're stranded on a desert island. No prospect of rescue. You can interpret the rules of this desert island however you want. uh, But you get one bottle of straight spirits 
and one cocktail that you either have all the ingredients for or is just somehow uh, you know on draft on a magical tap uh, so mm-hmm. what's your cocktail and what's your one bottle for your desert island experience well my my cocktail i'm gonna stray away from tiki here i would go with a mint julep mm. and uh you know i think you can just like sip on that all day long and just keeps tasting better and better so yeah and it's like it's strong sweet refreshing all at the same time so that's what i'd be drinking and my bottle would be plantation oftd um <laughs> it's yes. also strong but you can sip that really easily it's really smooth um probably just one of my favorite rums all around and um yeah also you can light it on fire so you know if you need to you need to light a fire now that's <laughs> a good point you're right now you're thinking actually that's <laughs> It's multi-versatile. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, 1934 Zombie, easy. Yeah, just great cocktail. Love it. I would say a Navy Grog would be my second favorite. But in this specific scenario, definitely a 1934 Zombie. Rum, or a spirit for that matter, would be a rum. Um, but I am really in love with Smith & Cross. It's hard to find here. We, like I said, this is one of the rums we had to have imported. And we have it right now, so it could just be a, you know, timely situation. But I'm really in love with that rum, and I'm happy to have it in the bar right now. So, Who would you drink that straight? If I was on an <laughs> island by myself, most definitely, <laughs> easily. And I could also start that on fire, too. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it comes in handy. So, yeah, love yeah. that rum. So Gorgeous. That, yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. Two very, very solid rum selections there. Um, All right, next question. You get to design an Aloha shirt that gives the wearer magical powers. This is a tiki-themed lightning round question. Mm -hmm. What does this Aloha shirt look like, and what powers does it give the wearer? So for me, you know, again, I am thinking maybe a little more fashion forward. I really would love to see more camo prints involved in aloha shirts and i know some people listeners might be cringing but (laughs) i think timely you know we talked about the south pacific and the war and you know even vietnam some of these prints are very specific to you know their environment as they are camouflage so they represent you know jungle or different you know um polony or uh, tropical environments and so I would really, really love to do something along that line of like, it doesn't have to be olive drab, but, you know, using those prints and those patterns. I've never seen that. I think it'd be very fashion forward and progressive for the Tiki movement. I'm surprised it has never kind of cross pollinated yet, but I would love that. And, you know, and honestly, it's like the special power would be to actually look good in a Hawaiian shirt. Cause I just feel like <laughs> you can't really ever pull it off, but we all wear them. Um, so that would be the special power. I know it's a kind of pathetic answer, but you know, if you could just look good in a Hawaiian shirt, I think that would be really cool. <laughs> I love it. I love the camo. I, th- I think that, uh, I think I sense maybe it now, now once you branch out from food, I see a, cl- a clothing collaboration in the future. Mm-hmm. Here for you. Oh, thanks for me. Uh, I would let violets in may design it. 
um, because I think she does a lot of really awesome tiki stuff and, you know, it's more feminine, you know, I'm not a fan of just like a plain Aloha shirt for women or for myself anyway, speaking for myself. Uh, so I'll let Violet and May design it and my superpower would be teleportation. So, you know, we're in Japan and our families are all back in the States and, and we've got, you know, a two year old son. And mm -hmm. I think it for yeah. us being able to <laughs> go and see our family anytime would be special. Yeah. So, part of that yeah. too, is like if we could all just hug her at once and teleport <laughs> okay. while she wears it, like that's part of it. So it's not just a singular teleportation. Yeah, it's like as many people who can like touch her at the, you know, like grab on at the same time gets yeah. to teleport. I think that's right. important. And also you can save time on your commute. You know, I take a train <laughs> like an hour both ways. So if I could just get there in the snap of fingers, then I can save myself some time. Yeah, that's true. That would be great. Amazing. Amazing. I love that. A couple quick rapid fire ones here. Uh, right. if you had to, let's, let's take smugglers cove off the, uh, off the, off the menu here, since you guys already mentioned Martin Kate, but if you had to recommend a single tiki book to get someone started on their journey, that's not smugglers cove, what would it be? Yeah. Beach bum berry, sipping safari. Or potions mm -hmm. of the Caribbean. Yeah. Potions of the Caribbean. Honestly, from a historic perspective, I love potions of the Caribbean even more because it tells the history of rum, other rum and Caribbean cocktails. I think that's a great like you want to dig deeper than Tiki potions of the Caribbean. He did a great job. Love it. As yeah. Shout out to Jeff. Yep. Yeah. As far as um, learning about the cocktails though, I mean, smuggler's Cove, I think is like the Bible of Tiki. <laughs> he like, said no. I know, no. but that's, that's my answer. Like, I mean, I just See, think the way that he breaks it down into the different styles of rum. I learned so much about, rum and like how to how to mix them well together from that book so you know i think potions of the caribbean's got great recipes but you know it's harder to understand unless you know the history and the exact like rum that they use it's hard to understand how to recreate that same flavor profile mm. So it sounds like a potent one two punch with uh, yeah. Jeff Barry and Martin Kate here so uh, last question What's a spirit that you'd like to see used more in tropical drinks? Uh, I'd like to see Campari used more. I'm a big fan of the Jungle Bird and anything bitter, really, I, um, which is not something you get a lot in tiki cocktails. So, yeah, just if we could invent some more drinks using Campari or more like bitter flavors, I enjoy that. Yeah, for me, I love bourbon. I'm really excited to be experimenting a little bit more with that this fall. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see more bourbon. We're also, as a, a tiki bar in Japan, we're experimenting more with Japanese spirits like awamori and sake, which is really tough to blend into tiki because sake has a very, very distinct taste. And you don't necessarily want to hide that, but it's hard to really match it with tiki. But we're doing our best to fuse like Japanese spirits and local Japanese distilleries into our cocktails because, yeah, not only is it a, a great fusion and, you know, cross pollination, it's, it's, you know, they're affordable here. It's, it's available. It's, and so it's just natural for us to be using their spirits. And so, yeah. but uh, Awamori is uh, based out of Okinawa, 
Yeah, we've been hoping to do something with Alamodi, so I'd love to see that for sure. Yeah, same same here. I think there's a enormous potential in that particular spirits category, and it's obviously so unique to Japan. So uh, we'll definitely be following along, my myself and our listeners, and hopefully, you know, next time we see a, a menu drop from uh, from the Kazan room, we'll see some some fun new surprises on there. Uh, Brandon, Kim, this has been as I said, tremendous. Uh, can you just quickly, before we sign off, let our listeners know how best to digitally connect with you so that when they're planning that trip to Japan, they can uh, get a reservation? Yeah. So, you know, we're on Instagram, I would say is our biggest marketing tool at the Kazan Room. That's our name. And we're the only one at that. So that's easy. I had it. So you can message me directly. We get a lot of messages. It's great. Just let us know if you're coming or if you need some reservations. That's great. Uh, We're on Google Maps, Apple Maps. I mean, you can't message us that way necessarily, but you can at least find out where we're at. And then on Instagram too, you can contact us via email, which would just be at the Kazan Room Gmail. So yeah, I don't know. Pretty basic, basic marketing strategy. Nice. Well, uh, we will have links to everything that we can over on the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Kim, Brandon, thank you so much for sharing everything about Japan, the tiki culture that you're pioneering there. And uh, thanks most importantly for being my guests here on the Modern Barcart podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, tiki and bar design insights courtesy of Brandon and Kim Griltz of the Kazan Room in Kobe, Japan, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. 
This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.